When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. New Year, same crew bringing you the weekly stock market news. Motley Fool Money starts now. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best thing in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Dylan Lewis. Joining me over the airwaves, Motley Fool Senior Analysts, Matt Argersinger and Jason Moser. Gentlemen, great to have you both here for the new year. Hey, hey. Happy New Year. We've got a big name cutting its dividend, some inspiration for folks getting back on top of their finances in the new year, and of course, stocks on our radar. But we're going to kick off today carrying forward one of the big themes of 2023. Matt, the Magnificent Seven companies did a lot of the heavy lifting in 2023, leading to a lot of the big gains, especially in the major indices. Where do some of those companies sit now? Yes, they they certainly did their their share uh, last year, Dylan. I mean, if we look at the seven companies, uh, let's start with Alphabet. 2023 returns, 58%. Amazon, 81%. Apple, the laggard, 49%. Meta, one of the big winners, 194%. Microsoft, 58%. NVIDIA, the big winner, 239%. And Tesla, with a pedestrian 101% or a double. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> last year, um, that you average all that together, and the magnificent magnificent seven more than doubled. And remember, these are the biggest companies uh, in the S and P five hundred in the market. Um, you know, uh, Apple with three trillion market cap, Microsoft and Meta well over a trillion. What I think is interesting, you know, looking at the magnificent seven coming into this year, though, and you know, after these huge returns they had last year, if you look at the the, the forward earnings multiple. For these businesses, let's go through the list again. Alphabet, 21 times forward earnings, not not terribly expensive, just a little bit above market. Amazon, more expensive at 43 times earnings. Apple at 29 times earnings. Meta, the cheapest one, 20 times earnings. Uh, Microsoft, 33 times earnings. Nvidia, as you might expect, 40 times earnings, pretty expensive there. And Tesla, the most expensive, at 63 times forward earnings. Average all that out, and you end up with a forward earnings multiple for the group of 35. That's well above market. If you look at the S&P 500, about 19 times forward earnings. The equal weight S&P 500 at 16 times earnings. And then if you go to small caps, a place where I'm spending a lot of time these days, you're at a 14 earnings multiple. So these companies are expensive. Now, I would also argue, though, these are among the best businesses out there. They deserve a premium valuation. I think the question is how much of a premium. And given the run that these companies have had, given where they stand in terms of their valuation, I can understand why... Some of these might be getting a little sold off here to begin 2024 as this as this bull market kind of broadens out a little more. People look to invest elsewhere, and maybe these will tend to lag or certainly not do as well as they did last year. That would be crazy. 
So, Jason, I've seen a couple downgrades come in this week, particularly for Apple. Do you feel like some of that analyst pessimism is just a reflection on, hey, this company had a tremendous year, or is there a little bit more to that? I think that's partly it. I mean, there's no question. I mean, Apple had a tremendous year, but as Maddie noted, I mean, it was the laggard of the seven, right? I mean, it just modest 49% gains, right? I think we were all very happy with that over the course of any year. But I think what's interesting when you look at Apple, and I think, by the way, it's important to know with all of these companies, there's a difference between owning right, and buying, right? Maybe it's not the opportunity to buy right now, but we're not saying that these things are a point where you need to be selling. I mean, these are businesses right. that you want to own, right? Just might not be the best opportunity to buy them or add to your positions. Uh, but, but interestingly, when you look at Apple and you consider these multiples, looking at, at where Apple is today, in the neighborhood of 30 times trailing earnings. You you go back to 2019, it was like 15. I mean, you, we talk about multiple compression. Well, there's multiple expansion, too. And I think a lot of these companies, I mean, they, they've been very successful for a number of reasons, but we've seen a lot of multiple expansion when it comes to these Magnificent Seven, certainly Apple, uh, to be sure, because we went from essentially 15 times earnings in you know, 2019 to around 30 today. So, that's something to keep in mind. And then, when you couple that with just this general idea, sort of the the it, it, it's not a leap, right? To assume that maybe we're not going to be upgrading our iPhones as much. The phones are better; they last longer. I don't need to buy a new one every two years. Maybe it's just every three years now. Maybe soon it'll be every other you know, every four years. But you look at Foxconn, right? We just saw news today from Foxconn. They reported a revenue drop for the final quarter of 2023. They saw a decline in December. They're seeing year-over-year decline in sales for the first quarter of 2024. This matters because Foxconn is the leading iPhone assembler, a big supplier of Apple. So, that's a good indicator maybe of some of the challenges on Apple's horizon as it regards to hardware, as it relates to hardware. The one thing, sort of, the, the the question I think with Apple now is just regard to services, right? We talked about Apple being a services company. I mean, is that somewhere where Apple will be able to make up for some lost ground yet to be determined? But what we're seeing is even the services revenue that that's starting to slow down as well. So again, not saying that Apple's a bad idea, and not saying sell your Apple, but hey, I, I do get the pessimism there. Maybe this is a time to sort of sit back and and, and let this thing come back to us a little bit. Matt, knowing the cycle of financial news and the way that the media tends to work, I can anticipate six months from now, after this great year that these seven companies had, maybe some tough results, maybe some tough comps, and those articles being out there saying, you know, the Magnificent Seven, not so much in 2024. Is, is the take on these companies right now, basically, if we see declines in these prices, they're probably pretty attractive opportunities to hop in? Yeah, I think I heard on the airwaves somewhere this week, it was like the MAG-7 could become the LAG-7 in <laughs> 2024. No, I, I would say I own a few of these companies. And, you know, any kind of, any kind of meaningful pullback, you're still buying best-of-breed businesses, right? These companies have pricing power, they're non-cyclical, recurring revenue, just beasts of businesses. And I think any kind of Discount, especially if you got back to close to a market multiple, these these companies deserve a premium. I would say that's when you step in and say, yeah, there's opportunity there for sure. 
when they hit lugubrious seven, that's when you really start <laughs> even thinking about buying more shares. Lugubrious seven, don't not lag seven. Let's be smart about this. Lugubrious. lugubrious. Seven. Wow. I, yeah, Someone has been studying the dictionary over the holiday break. I'm gonna have to look that one up after we. He's got a daughter that was, that was taking the SAT test recently. <laughs> All right, uh, gentlemen, it is that special time of the year when the wrapping paper and the wreckage of the holidays is out of the house. The new toys all have their batteries, and we've got some numbers to make sense of the past holiday shopping season. In addition to shopping, it seems like Jason's been doing a little bit of reading, but I'm going to ask him to check in on the retail picture for the holiday season. As you look back on what we've seen and some of the data we got out there, Jason, what do you think the headline is? Well, I mean, we saw a headline this week. Adobe Analytics called uh, called out online spending for this holiday season. Uh, it was up five percent to just over two hundred twenty-two billion dollars for the months of November and December. So, modest growth there. I mean, I feel like I feel like my holiday spending was a little bit more than five percent. So maybe you know, maybe I'm adding a little bit to that. Um, the <laughs> big theme, though, across the board, though, it, it wasn't really more spending on more things. It was lower prices. Right. I mean, we saw discounts really come into play this holiday season. I think 31%. We saw a peak discount, 31% off a listed price in electronics versus 25% from a year ago, uh, 24% for apparel versus 19% from a year ago. So ultimately, we saw shoppers really focusing on those discounts. They bought more things, but they weren't necessarily paying more for them. Um, I think I think one of the concerns that kind of stands out, and you know, we were talking a little bit about this in, in, in pre-production, in production, was just in regard to how people are spending. Right? I mean, we know the consumer is stretched. Uh, buy now, pay later. This is this is something that's going to be a tool that consumers use going forward. If it's something that helps sellers sell, and it, and, it, and it helps you know consumers buy, then I mean, it, it's going to stick around. I think, but but it really needs to find its place in sort of our financial landscape here, because as we see buy now, pay later take a bigger a bigger role in how people are spending their money, and it's a bigger role. I mean, it was sixteen point six billion dollars in online spending year over the holiday season, up fourteen percent from a year ago. We need we need to really make sure this is something that the credit ratings agencies see, that merchants see, so that we understand really where the consumers stand. Because I think the problem what we're seeing right now is that consumers are using buy now pay later in addition to credit cards, right? Tapping out those credit cards and then going to buy now pay later, which just puts you more in debt, and that can be a scary thing. In addition to the update from Adobe Analytics, we also saw some data from Mastercard showing U.S. retail sales up three percent. E-commerce doing the heavy lifting there, but brick and mortar also playing a role at 2.2% growth year over year. Matt, are you like Jason? Are you contributing to the growth that we're seeing? I, I contributed plenty of growth uh, <laughs> this this season for sure, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned kind of the uh, the brick and mortar because I think that was an area that a lot of people have sort of given up for dead. But you know, lots of customer traffic. I know some of the malls I went to were just packed, and so people were definitely getting out there and spending. All right, coming up after the break, if you're thinking about canceling Netflix or Max, you're not alone. Is that a problem for streamers? Stay right here. You're listening. Ricky Malvi with Motley Fool Money here to tell you about a vehicle that is redefining sporting luxury, the Range Rover Sport. The first thing I noticed when I sat down in the driver's seat is that I felt like I was in a cockpit. You're up off the ground in a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. I also really appreciated the overhead 360 degree camera view that let me know exactly where I was going as I was backing out of the parking space. I went for a drive in the Range Rover Sport out in Littleton, Colorado, and tested the accelerator just a little bit and felt the performance and agility 
It's an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. To put it plainly, the Range Rover Sport is powerful. It's also quiet and comfortable. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. I'd like to invite you to visit LandRoverUSA.com to learn more about the Range Rover Sport. To Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Dylan Lewis, joined over the airwaves by Fool analysts Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger. If you're looking at your credit card statements and saying, do I really need to be subscribed to four different streaming services? You are in growing company. Jason, to borrow a phrase from former Grubhub CEO Matt Maloney, streaming customers are becoming more and more promiscuous and willing <laughs> to jump and join other services and cancel. Oof. We're seeing more rotation. That word's such an attention getter, right? Promiscuous. <laughs> it's like, nope, we're talking about streaming. <laughs> I, listen, I, I personally, it feels like to me we've hit the ceiling, right? This is unsustainable at this point, and consolidation is going to have to happen in order for some of these streamers to be able to stay in business. I mean, I, it's the beginning of the year. I like going through and doing a little bit of a, you know, a checking account audit, credit card statement audit, just to seeing exactly what we're all subscribed to, because it really does add up. It, it does seem like we're headed for a world with like a big four, right? Something like a Netflix, some sort of Hulu combo, maybe Amazon and then Max. And then you've got all of the other sort of other niche players in there that are that are figuring out ways to be part of, of bigger packages, right? I mean, you got Verizon out there talking about offering a suite of Netflix and, and Warner Brothers uh, Discoveries, uh, HBO Max, and then you've got possibility of, of Apple saddling up with Paramount Plus. I mean, I, to me, this is all stuff that's going to continue. Um, it, it does, it feels like we're going back to the bundle. Right. I mean, in simplest terms, we're going back to some sort of a bundle because honestly, that's where you see the most value. And so I, you know, I, I look at this just from our perspective. And in, in our household, we have Hulu Live, but with that, of course, we get the ESPN Plus and all that, the Disney Plus. So I mean, all of that together, yeah, it, it's it's a little bit of an, a more expensive bill than just your your simple streaming service. But we're getting so much, right? It's like cable light almost. And so I suspect we're going to continue to see this. But I think this also really speaks to the value in having the ad supported option as well. And that's why we're seeing Netflix introduced. We saw Amazon just rolling this out. Um, clearly, it's part of Hulu's model all along. But that really, I think, enables these companies to keep or at least potentially keep more subscribers without them necessarily defecting completely, right? Instead of cutting your subscription, maybe you just downgrade it to an ad-supported model until you decide to re-upgrade. Uh, and then you're seeing Netflix as, as an example there where they're trying to figure out ways to monetize gaming, right? So gaming being part of not only the engagement in keeping people in the universe, but also new sources of monetization. So it's, it's a really interesting space. I think 2024 is where we're going to see a real shake out here, a lot of consolidation, not going to surprise me at all. All right. In addition to the new year kicking off, we have earnings season kicking off as the calendar page turns. Some of the earlier reporters got the party started this week. And Matt, we saw a bit of a shock from Walgreens, not so much in the earnings headline numbers, but in the company's plans for its cash. Right. Not so much a party over there at Walgreens uh, lately, but they, uh, yeah, they slashed their dividend 
uh, from 48 cents to 25 cents. It's the first dividend cut, by the way, in 45 years for Walgreens. Uh, you know, it, it is, or I should say, it, it was a dividend aristocrat, meaning it was a member of this really elite group of uh, S&P 500 companies that have raised their dividend for 25 consecutive years, uh, as defined by S&P Global. This was a monumental move uh, because, you know. Walgreens CEO can say, all right, we're doing this because we want to turn around the business. We want to shore up the balance sheet. We want to reinvest. And, and the dividend is just it's costing about $800 million in annual cash flow. We can save that money. Um, it'll enable us to pay down debt, et cetera. But history is not on Walgreens' side here. Ned Davis Research and Hartford Funds did a really neat long-term study of the S&P 500 covering 50 years from 1973 to the end of 2022. The average stock in the S&P 500 returned 7.7% annually. The average dividend-paying company returned 9.2% annually. The average company that cut its dividend returned a negative 0.6% annually. That's over 50 years. So you can believe Walgreens is making the right business decision. But historically, if you look at most companies, a dividend cut is almost always a signal of poor performance ahead. And here's a bad comp for Walgreens. VF Corp, bigger apparel brand owner, they had raised their dividend 50 consecutive years going into last year. They finally cut their dividend about a year ago. The stock is down some 70% since the cut. So I would, if I'm a Walgreens shareholder, I might think they're making the right business decision. It might not be the best long-term decision for the stock. It could be a really bad signal. Yeah, anytime we see any adjustments to those dividend policies, we know how sacred those dividends can be and just how oh important gosh. they are to investors. So it's it's not a decision that management teams take lightly. We are going to see more earnings reports pick up over the course of the month. And I want to get a little preview. Jason, as we see more businesses report over the coming weeks, what are you paying attention to? Is there any business in particular that you're watching? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm actually looking forward to Cloudflare's uh, report here. I think that'll that'll come out later in February. But you, you go back to just April of 2023, right? They reported their first quarter earnings where the stock just got pummeled. I mean, it was sub forty dollars per share, and and that was based essentially on. I mean, what we what we you know then heard for the rest of the year was all of these enterprise customers, you know, pinching the purse strings, really watching that spending. Uh, Cloudflare, which has always been valued at a premium, still working its way towards sustainable. Profitability, yada yada yada, but I mean they they guided down just slightly, right? I mean they guided down somewhere in the neighborhood of four percent on the top line. At that point, they said they still were going to grow that top line thirty one and a half percent, and the market still just punished the stock. But you fast forward to today, and clearly there's been a, a strong recovery in the business. And if you look at just the most recent quarter's results, I mean, the key performance indicators remain impressive. Large customers are growing and spending more money, uh, and they're still guiding for what they expect to see 32% top-line growth for the full year, uh, around 28 to 29% for this quarter that they're getting ready to report. So, that's going to be a company I'm keeping my eye on. Matt, what about you? What's a name that you're watching this earnings season? I'm, I'm looking at Vail Resorts here. Uh, now, they don't report until early March. They're kind of one of those off-cycle reporters. But this is a critical quarter for Vail because it, uh, it encompasses the results through January, so that first big month of the ski season. And Vail had a really tough 2022-2023 uh, ski season. They had tough weather conditions in the West. They had you know, very little snow in the, in the East. Um, they taken on a lot of debt recently. They made a lot of big acquisitions and some big capital investments in their resorts. So this kind of has to be a really good ski season, uh, I think, to support continued investment, keep the dividend growing. I'm a shareholder, so that's uh, that's both of those things are important to me. But also, I think Vail's resorts will tell us a little bit about the state of consumer spending, particularly at the high end. 
if there's weakness in their resort revenues, in their ancillary businesses, in, in the traffic they're seeing to their mountains and to their resorts and to their restaurants, that might be a signal that we're finally seeing a consumer pull back a little bit. And I think that could signal that we, we might be headed to a bit of an economic downturn, especially if, if a lot of those, uh, you know, those buy now, pay later people are going to those resorts. They booked all these vacations <laughs> on there. Uh, you know, I'm a little worried about that after, uh, after some of the things Jason said. Well, Matt, I can personally speak to the conditions on the ground on the East Coast resorts. I spent New Year's in the Poconos and went to Blue Mountain, and all that was on the ground was blown snow. There was not a flake of snow, just just a thin vein of snow going down the mountain as, as you rolled up from a distance. So I don't know if that picture is going to change anytime soon, but I but I awfully hope it does. I sure hope it does too, because I'm flying out to Utah at the end of the month, so to do some skiing uh, out near Park City. So. <laughs> Hoping for snow. Hoping for snow. We'll put the call out there for listeners as well. We'll appreciate the snow reports and the resort reports. Uh, if you're out there, podcast.fool.com is where you can send them. Jason, Matt, we're going to see you guys a little bit later in the show. Up next, Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner explains why the future is so bright, you got to wear shades. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I'm studying nuclear science. I love my classes. I got a crazy teacher. He wears dark glasses. Things are going great, and they're only getting better. I'm doing all right, getting good grades. The future's so bright. I gotta win. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Dylan Lewis. We're back in the studio for the first time in 2024, and the new year means a renewed interest in all topics money and investing. So this week, I caught up with Motley Fool co-founder, chief rule breaker, and host of the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast, David Gardner. David walked me through some timeless investing advice and gave an optimistic look forward to kick off the new year. David, thanks so much for joining me. Happy New Year, Dylan. Happy New Year, everyone. Yeah, it's great to kick off 2024, and it's great to do it with you here on the show. Every time the calendar page turns over into January, I know a lot of people, especially a lot of our listeners, check in on their finances, and they start to make some goals about their investing life and what they want to be doing with money over the year. You've been speaking to investors, new and old, for such a long time. I wanted to start out with you and some advice for two different groups. First off, some of the folks that are coming into investing and are maybe new to investing, maybe what your advice would be for them. It's, it's longer term than you think. I, I truly believe that many people who come new to investing think that it's trading. When it's not, it's investing. And there's a really important difference. Trading is shorter term. It's practiced often by people down on floors, like futures traders, bond traders, professional people. There are also people who buy their big PC with their trading station and day trade watching CNBC. Most of our foolish listeners, new and old, won't be like that. But just understand that's such the t- temper of the times. That's how people often think. They they watch CNBC and it's a minute to minute thing, and so they they start with such a short term mentality. If you're an investor with us, capital F, a foolish investor, you're thinking about it for the rest of your life. You should be invested all the way through, adding, 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 rarely selling unless uh, you don't believe in that thing anymore and you can change out that money to something else. So, I would say to the new investors, understand the proper mentality, the right mindset for what is investing, a beautiful word, the antithesis of trading. All right. And David, what about people that have been investing for a while and maybe have been investing the foolish way, where they are long-term buyers and owners of businesses? 
Yeah, uh, keep it up. Keep it up, because you know what? There are a lot of countervailing forces that try to stop you from keeping it up. Huge market gyrations. We've seen that over the last few years. A huge up, a huge down, and a pretty great year back up last year. I'm not all the way back, Dylan, to my 2021 highs. I don't know about you, friend, but uh, a lot of us are probably not. If you're if you've been with Motley Fool for a while, you're probably not back to your all-time highs yet. But you shouldn't be that far. And I understand some of us started with the fool three years ago when the market was about to tank. Others started three decades ago. We've seen this time and time again. And all that really matters is not what happened last year, 2023, uh, or 10 years ago, but what happens next. And for me, what happens next is usually good. I think the market's going up this year, two years in three, it does. So just understand that your own. What you tell yourself in your head during bad times often is the hardest thing you need to overcome as a as an investor, as a foolish investor. I would also just add as maybe an appendix to that, Dylan, you know, take a look over the stocks in your portfolio. Are these all companies that you esteem? Would you be proud if that company takes over the world in the next 10 years? Is it a better world? It's so important to me as a conscious capitalist that each of us realizes the money that is in our portfolios is really shaping the future, truly, in its own small way, in aggregate, in a huge way. So I would say, make your portfolio reflect your best vision for our future. And from time to time, we need to just review and see if that's still true. David, it's as if you had my portfolio statement in front of you. Uh, I am off of all-time highs, but still well above where I was before the pandemic. And a big part of that is the success of companies that I've owned for quite some time and have enjoyed owning, will continue to own. One of those businesses for me is Axon. It's been an incredible performer and certainly a business that I want to own as I see the future unfold, because I think it can play a very large and critical part in it. It's also a business I have learned so much from by following and just kind of understanding where the world has gone. When I look at Axon, for example, I see the migration to cloud being such a large part of that story. That's huge and a really critical part of the Fool ethos, learning from businesses that we invest in. I'm curious, as we look out, you know, are there any names in your mind, maybe from the past year or from recent memory, that you feel like you've learned a lot from? Well, I think what I'd want to first of all, I think every stock tells a story. And if you stuck with that stock, you lengthened the story and it became a more important, deeper story that you learn more from. If you're just jumping in, jumping out, you're not going to learn too much. But we, we certainly love stories at The Motley Fool. And you're a wonderful storyteller, Dylan. You talk to other people who tell stories. And that's what I'm about to do is tell a story. The one I wanted to talk about here is, is NVIDIA. Because NVIDIA has ended up becoming the greatest stock pick in Motley Fool Stock Advisor history as of now. And it's good to look at our exemplars. It's good to look at excellence and what really wins and understand and learn from that. So, um, can I just tell a little bit of the story of NVIDIA? Of course. (laughs) Let's do it. Settle down here by the campfire, I hope, friends and family, maybe hard cider. And let's talk briefly this weekend about NVIDIA, which I first picked on, it was tax day, April 15th, 2005. Uh, the stock was at a dollar sixty-four. These are all split-adjusted prices, so you know it's it's sort of uh, it's a very successful graphics card company. So they're making, um, if you like computer games, and I do, they're making cards that give you better better graphics, graphic processing units, kind of what Nvidia was bringing. That's what attracted me to them at the time. By October two thousand seven, so two years later, it's gone from a buck sixty-four to ten. So, six bagger, feeling great. Now, those of us who remember market history know 2007, things are probably P 
peaking somewhere right around now. But six bagger two years later for our all our stock advisor members couldn't be more excited about Nvidia. By the end of 2008, it had dropped from 10 to below a dollar 50. So there we are with our six bagger three years later. We're now underwater on the pick, but we stick with it. By the end of 2014, it's back to five. So half where it was seven years earlier, but still a three bagger nine years after we picked it. So it's back to five. 2016, two years later, big moment. It crosses 10. Yep, 10, where it had been in October 2007. We're back. By the end of that year, it has tripled from seven and a half to 22 and a half. 2016, it is the top performing stock on the S&P 500. So our cost basis is $1.64, and we're back to 22 and a half. We've held over a decade through just crazy times. I'm going to give myself a little bit props at this point because as I thought about, you know, what stock do I want to re recommend at the start of 2017? There was a lot of reporting about how NVIDIA had been the top performer on the S&P 500 the previous year. And most people get afraid then. They think, well, you know, revert to the mean. What goes up must come down. But trying to be the foolish rule breaker that I am, I made that my new pick to start 2017. So yes, 12 years later, I'm picking it again to buy with fresh money. And just a month after it closed out the best year for the S&P 500 of any other of the 499 stocks. So 2017 re-rec, it goes from 22 and a half that year to 52 and a half. So it turns out you can be the top performer and a year later you can more than double again. So 2018 it's gone from 52 and a half to 70. I hope this isn't boring, but we're almost we're almost done this shaggy dog story. But in 2018 having just hit 70, it goes from 70 to 30. Whammo. I think some of us will remember crypto was like a big thing for Nvidia. Also, um, the idea of like AI and AI and cars and other things like that. And some of that slowed down and some of the crypto hype was subsiding. That really hurt Nvidia stock. So it gets cut in half that year. But by early 2020, it crosses 70 again. And by the end of 2020, it's at $130 a share. Remember, our cost base is is $1.64. So really nice then when in 2021 it goes from 130 to over $300 a share. And as we hit the penultimate chapter of this long story of association 18 years and, and counting with Nvidia, we learned that in 2022, the stock ends up dropping from just over 300 to just over 100. So you had a near trillion dollar company, Dylan, and fellow fools everywhere, that lost two thirds of its value in a single year. Uh, yeah, 2022, not so long ago. But today, we're back over 200, back over 300, back over 400. It recently touched 500, though it's around 475 or so as we close out this week. It's been a 295 bagger for Motley Fool Stock Advisor members, Vintage 2005, who are, I hope you are, still holding. All you had to do was just hold for 18 and a half years now and counting. So I think there's so much to have learned from that story. Many people don't have long associations with stocks, but when you can A, invest for the long term, the only term that counts, and B, find great companies. You just learn so much. Your eyes are opened to what investing truly is, but you have to let it take time. I would suggest the rest of your life. 
I love that story, David, because I think so many lessons there. And also because there are probably a lot of people that first started following NVIDIA this past year as it entered the Magnificent Seven and became this massive, unavoidable success story. And I love that, yes, it has been a long march for this company. And the people that have followed it and held it for that entire time have been incredibly well rewarded for doing so. And it's not the only one. I could tell similar stories around stocks that we've recommended in Stock Advisor. Netflix, which was when I retired from stock picking in May of 2021, that was the big performer. That was the 200 plus bagger. Of course, having picked Amazon a long time ago, back in our AOL days, still holding, um, that's really been the best stock pick of my life. But th- these are all great stories. And what you learn, what you choose to learn from the stories you take away. How many people, another great stock we've picked, Apple, how many people had Apple at some point, but maybe their money doubled and so they sold out, or maybe maybe it had a bad quarter and they thought, you know, people are saying Apple's too high right now. Whatever it is, you end up not learning and not prospering from some of the best instincts that you have. So, returning to what I said a few minutes ago, Dylan, if we are making our portfolio reflect our best vision for our future, and you just stay focused there, I bet your vision for the future isn't changing as often as stock prices do. I bet your best vision for our future is not changing as frequently as the pundits do, changing their minds on the so-called Magnificent Seven, a phrase I don't really use too often, because it's the Johnny-come-lately fang stock, like group a bunch of companies, many of which we've held for years and years, that just did really well and create a cute label for them. And I'm not trying to demean it, but I'm just like, it's so short term and it's missing the bigger picture. I hope I didn't offend you there, David. Not at all. No, <laughs> I, I believe me, I have a long list of pet peeves. I do them on my podcast <laughs> once or a year or so. I'll, I'll air out eight or 10 more. That is a pet peeve that predates you, Dylan. And it, it's really as much about the fang stocks. Do you remember that phrase? Of People course. Using that? Yeah. A lot of these are the same companies, just in different clothes, like Magnificent Seven. Most of those are the same stocks that were there. But when, when Jim Cramer especially was playing up fang stocks, my big point was, well, you know, it's great to have them or be aware of these companies. The Magnificent Seven are seven of the great companies in the world today. So I'm not going to uh, demean that. But the real question that I, I would have is for anybody who's talking about Magnificent Seven, what is your Magnificent Seven score? And your Magnificent Seven score is you add up the number of years that you've held each of those stocks in the Magnificent Seven. And that is much more important than that you had them at the end of this year, window dressing your professional mutual fund portfolio or telling your friends over um, eggnog that you own some NVIDIA. You know, To me, it's about the years. And that's the point that will rarely be made in popular media. And that is the point that matters more than anything else. You mentioned your pet peeve series there with RBI. You have many series and many recurring uh, volumes uh, with RBI. Uh, one of my favorites is your quote series. Uh, you have your great quote volumes. And I'm curious, we always look for wisdom. We always look for inspiration as we head into the new year. Uh, are there any quotes that are really ringing in your head right now? I, I love great quotes. And obviously, having now done 17 episodes with uh, a, a new group, five quotes every time. I guess I'm up to nearly 100 great quotes. So I am somebody, sounds like you are too, Dylan. I'm somebody who loves finding the mot juste. Uh, it's, it's across different cultures, across different time periods, but finding those things and sticking with them and uh, in good times and bad is really helpful for all of us as investors, business people, and fellow livers of life. So let me close with one that somebody I know in esteem, but didn't know he'd said it, but it's Frank Lloyd Wright, the American architect. And uh, I love this line, the longer I live, the more beautiful life becomes. And I, I hope that's true for 
you, whoever's listening right now, I hope that's true. We have the ups and downs. Every day is not beautiful. Every market year is not beautiful. But I hope the longer you hold NVIDIA, the longer you do the thing that you do, whatever it is, the thing that you do, the people that you love, the longer that you're here with us, I hope the more beautiful life becomes. It, it, it did for Frank Lloyd Wright, apparently, and I would say it did for me, and I'm looking forward to several more decades on this planet. After we wrapped up taping, David asked me, what's the cutoff for wishing someone a happy new year? I said January 12th. Listeners, we want to know what you think. You can send your New Year's greeting cutoff date to podcasts at full.com. And of course, you can always send questions for our analysts and ideas for the show there too, as well. Coming up after the break, Matt Argersinger and Jason Moser return with a couple stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis, joined again by Matt Argersinger and Jason Moser. We've got radar stocks in a minute, but first, Gentlemen, it appears there is a limit to pricing power. European grocer Carefor is dropping Pepsi products from stores after the company's run of price increases. Tough news if you're trying to get Doritos in Belgium, but maybe understandable given the increases we've seen. Jason, what is a snack with unlimited pricing power in the Moser household? Well, my wife will tell you I have the tooth of salt, not of sweet, so I I can spend irrationally on some Dots pretzels, all flavors. I do not discriminate. And a staple that I'm always on board with is extra toasty Cheez-Its. I love Dots pretzels. That was a new snack for me in 2023 and one that is a staple of my pantry now. Uh, Matt, what about you? What has pricing power? Yeah, I'm a big fan of Sun Chips. Uh, I think they're a Pepsi product, especially the garden salsa flavor. I think if my grocery store didn't sell them anymore, I'd be sad. Uh, but generally, I'm a big fan of just roasted, salted cashews or almonds, or really any nuts. Can't get enough. And unfortunately, bags of those run like $10 these days, but I can't help myself. Wow. We got, we got some salty pallets here. All right, let's get over to stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Jason, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Yeah, digging a little bit more into a company called UiPath, ticker is P-A-T-H. They build and manage uh, automation and computer vision technology. They do this through their business automation platform uh, that ultimately spans the full automation spectrum. Uh, examples of what this can be used for, think of healthcare where they can actually help automate EMR, electronic medical record workflows or claim systems, document management, and data transfer. Uh, they make money from the sale of their software licenses uh, in, in their their SaaS business subscriptions. They integrate with offerings from companies like Adobe, Atlassian, CrowdStrike, Salesforce, and more. So, this really does expand the audience and the use cases for the company. The co-founders and also co-CEOs, you got Daniel Dines and Rob Enslin. They're still leading the way. And Dines, interestingly, owns more than 19% of the company still. So, it's a very interesting business playing into a lot of the tailwinds we talk about with AI and automation and machine learning and whatnot. Still works Working its way to profitability, though, and valuation today is is still a big risk. We'd gone the entire show without talking AI, and here Jason brings it up towards the end. Dan, a question about UiPath. 
Not going to lie, when I saw the name of this company, I thought they would be like some sort of med tech stock that did stuff with urinary tract infections. <laughs> uh, terrible name for a company, regardless of what they do. So, mostly a comment, it seems. Uh, <laughs> kicking us off strong. Uh, Matt, what is on your radar this week? Pebblework Hotel Trust, ticker PEB. You can always count on me to find these small, obscure REITs that nobody cares about. But I think more investors should care about Pepperbrook. Uh, this is a REIT that really suffered, obviously, in the aftermath of COVID-19. Uh, you know, Business for their hotels and resorts basically shut down for several months, and it was very slow to bounce back. But here we are today. Hotel occupancy revenues are almost back to pre-pandemic levels. The company has sold off some of its non-core assets, paid down a lot of debt, no, no major debt maturities now until October 2025. And management has been buying back a lot of stock. That's rare for a REIT. Uh, in fact, the CEO himself has personally acquired over 300,000 shares since 2020. Um, and I expect a big dividend raise this year. Feels like a hidden gem to me in REIT land. Dan, a question about Pebblebrook Hotel Trust. Yeah, Maddie, you said this stock has suffered since the pandemic, but looking at their stock price, it seems like they've been suffering since about 2015. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good call, Dan. I think they extended themselves beyond their kind of core uh, boutique resort asset in, in those years. And so, I think they've done a good job of kind of selling a lot of this off, getting their debt lower. So, I, I think I expect better years ahead. Dan, which one's on your list? Uh, bad name, good company, UiPath. Let's go. Love it. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money Radio Show. Show's mixed by Dan Boyd. We'll see you next time.